Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today I'm excited to share with you an incredibly insightful conversation I had with Dr. David Minkoff, where we use the COVID-19 pandemic situation to explore some interesting topics that we should all be aware of. You'll get to hear more about Dr. David Minkoff's credentials and experience shortly, but needless to say, his education and experience with infectious and chronic diseases, as well as being a pediatrician, has given him the credentials and authority to speak about these matters with certainty. This was a refreshing conversation to speak to a doctor who was not beating you over the head with fearful messages of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or that we should all be scared and shelter from this virus until a vaccine is available. Far from it, actually. Dr. Minkoff shared with us the reality of this virus in terms of morbidity, susceptibility, and the relatively benign nature of COVID-19 when compared to other infectious diseases. His message is one of getting healthy and carrying on with your life. Wow. We talk about some more controversial subjects too, such as the germ theory versus the host theory. The reason why we are not told about how to actually defend against COVID-19 and the sketchy history of the vaccine industry. Dr. Minkoff helps us understand why heavy metals and other additives called adjuvants exist within vaccines today and why all vaccines are not created equal in terms of risk versus reward. We also cover heavy metal toxicity in general and how his wife's health caused him to specialize in this field, as well as Dr. Minkoff's general recommendations to keeping infectious and chronic diseases at bay. All in a great conversation, one you will not get from your standard GP, doctor, or healthcare provider. And as always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey, which is an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Minkoff as we explore the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccine efficacy, and heavy metal toxicity. Okay, today we are lucky to have a well-known alternative medicine practitioner on our show today. He's a board-certified pediatrician. He served as a co-director of a neonatal intensive care unit in the US. He co-founded and runs a wellness center called LifeWorks in Clearwater, Florida for what has been the best part of 20 plus years. He's authored a well-received nutrition book called The Search for the Perfect Protein, He specializes in addressing modern-day chronic issues, detoxing heavy metals, and helping people reach their genetic potential. And if that wasn't enough, 
He's a 43-time Ironman athlete. Yes, we have the wise and incredibly caring endurance machine that is Dr. David Minkoff. Welcome, Doctor. Oh, thank you, Steve. Uh, it's, it, oh, I'm very excited to be having this conversation. I'm so glad we were able to organize it. I've uh, heard your name and heard you on podcasts previously, so this should be a good chat. Great. I'm looking forward to it. So first, first and foremost, are you okay with me calling you David here on out, or should we go more formal and keep doctor? David's good. Good. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, today, if we can, I'd love for us to lean into your some of your expertise, and I'd love for us to talk about the prevalence of metabolic dysfunction throughout society, specifically in America. Uh, I know they look very similar to the UK. Perhaps we can dig into vaccines a little bit, because obviously that's highly topical right now with the COVID-19 crisis and I guess people waiting for a vaccine to come. And if we can, maybe we can hit on one of your specialisms, which is understanding heavy metal toxicity. And if we manage, and I'm not sure if we will, but if we get to it, it'd be great to understand how you help people optimize their genetic potential. It's quite a lot to cover. Are you up for it, David? I'm up for it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, um, maybe we can get started with you bringing the audience up to speed uh, with your background. So perhaps a, a brief walk through your academic and vocational pedigree. Is that okay? Sure. I uh, I actually majored, uh, I was the first one to get into the University of Wisconsin Medical School with a language major. Um, I decided actually when I was five years old that I wanted to be a doctor, but halfway through college I had other interests and then switched back to decide to go into medicine. So I graduated with my MD degree and then I did a three-year residency in pediatrics um, and then did a year as chief resident of a big pediatric program in at the University of California in San Diego. Uh, I then did a two-year subspecialty in pediatric and adult infectious disease. And part of that, most of that time was clinical. Part of the time I did research on antiviral medications. Um, and then I went into practice uh, doing a mixture of pediatric infectious disease and regular hospital infectious disease. It was the early 80s. It was just the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, people thought it was some kind of an infection. And so we were seeing all kinds of people with strange, uh, just very strange types of infections. And I did that um, from the early 80s until 1990. I also, uh, as you mentioned, was co-director of a neonatal intensive care unit. And I had an interest in emergency medicine. So I was working on the side in, a, in a, an emergency room. The... Um, in the early 80s, I started running marathons, and then I went over to Hawaii and did my first Ironman, which was the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon, and I got hooked. So I've been training and racing triathlon since 1982. I've done many hundreds of triathlons, 43 of them Ironmans. Um, I'm usually pretty competitive in my age group on a national level, and I really enjoy it, and it helps me to keep my lifestyle in. Um, 
once I transitioned to emergency medicine, I moved to Florida, uh, where I'm based now in Clearwater, Florida. It's in the Tampa Bay area. And until about 1996, I was doing emergency medicine, but my wife got ill and uh, she had been studying. She was a nurse and she had a degree in microbiology, but she was got interested in natural health, which at the time I wasn't really interested in. And she would go to lectures and learn things. And, uh, and so one of the things she learned is that the silver fillings in your teeth are actually 50% mercury and only the rest of it is a mixture of silver, zinc, and copper. And she decided to take the metals out of her mouth. And so she went to a dentist who didn't really have the correct equipment to get rid of the heavy metals. So he drilled them out and the particles sprayed all over and she swallowed them and she breathed them. And a few months later, she developed a number of autoimmune conditions, thyroiditis, hepatitis, and then what looked like MS. She lost strength in a, in a, in a shoulder muscle and in her glute muscle. And I was in a, a very good emergency room community hospital and I knew all the best doctors and I had her see a, a thyroid specialist and a liver specialist and a neurologist and they all came up with autoimmune disease with no real solution, but then started suggesting that she needed to go on medications which had potential toxic side effects, uh, steroids and interferon. And it got me sort of thinking that maybe they really didn't have a solution that was going to be the best one. And then by accident, um, I was picking her up from her own work. She owns a home healthcare nursing business. And I went to pick her up one afternoon and a guy walked out of a new office that had just moved in. And on the office marquee, it said natural dentistry. And he was walking out to his car and I stopped him and I just introduced myself. And I said, I don't know if this is relevant, but would you hear my story for five minutes? Cause I'm searching for an answer. My wife got the mercury removed from her teeth. Um, She's now got a, a bunch of autoimmune diseases. Nobody seems to know what's going on. Does that ring a bell for you? And he said, well, you see up there on the marquee, it says natural dentistry. And I said, yeah, but I didn't really know what that meant. And he said, well, the most basic idea is that we as dentists consider that the mouth is actually part of the body. It's not an independent thing outside the body and that you wouldn't do anything in the mouth or to the teeth or gums or tongue or throat that you wouldn't do someplace else. So he said, from your wife's story, I am sure she's mercury toxic. Now, no doctor of any discipline would ever use mercury in the body. They used to do it in the late 1700s with Mozart and try to cure syphilis and they killed everybody. But we know today that these are very toxic and that you can't put them in the body without a potential problem. And then if you take a drill, a high speed drill and you drill it and it goes all over, you can cause that mercury to enter different organs, the nervous system, it will kill nerve cells, the heart, it will kill heart cells, the kidney, it will kill kidney cells. And it produces 
an autoimmune reaction. So he said, nobody in this town is going to be able to help you with her. There is a doctor in Seattle who is very knowledgeable in this, and he trains doctors in how to diagnose and treat this. And I would recommend that you go there and learn his techniques and then come back here and work on your wife, which is what I did. So I went to Seattle and I spent a lot of time with him and I learned how to do it. And I came back and I applied it to her. And within four or five months, all of her symptoms were gone and she was well. She was indeed mercury toxic. Now, we had a lot of, now I worked in an emergency room and emergency room is shift work. So I, it was either seven in the morning till seven at night or seven at night till seven in the morning, three or four shifts a week was my usual workload. And so I had a couple of days during the week where I was free. And uh, a lot of our friends kind of saw this transition of her from M, you know, thyroiditis, hepatitis, MS to healthy triathlete because she became a triathlete too. And they said, can you help us? You know, and I've got rheumatoid arthritis or I've got colitis or I've got interstitial cystitis or I've got MS or I've got, you know, name your chronic illness. And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, will you try? So what I did was I um, went to, I there was, a, there was an office available in her nursing office, uh, a single room. And what I did was I set up a little office in there and I said, I'm not gonna charge anybody. I will try this on you. And we started to get very amazing results on people. And within about six months, we had rented uh, the office next door, which was available, 3,000 square feet. We moved in there. Uh, within a year, we were overflowing. And now we have about a 15,000 square foot area where we really have a virtually everything that's available to treat not just chronic illness, because we see some high-end athletes and we see, you know, we see all kinds of people, but where we've been able to put together a technology that can really help people um, using natural type medicines and, uh, and treatments. So, you know, now our common patients, this morning I saw three new patients, um, one had Lyme disease, one had breast cancer, and another one had chronic fatigue. And usually each day I'll see three or four new ones and then spend the afternoon doing rechecks. And we have a big IV room and we have a lot of other kinds of technology with the idea that your average person who's ill is not by genetic, by a genetic problem. Like they're normal or they were normal and three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, they went from a normal functioning person to someone with fatigue, brain fog, cancer, weakness, um, Parkinson's, and there's a reason for it. And unfortunately, the sort of standard medical approach is symptom sort of uh, Band-Aid medicine, and without a very good discipline at why did they get that way, could we find out? And if we found out and handled whatever those things are, 
they could get better. And that's what happens. About our average person has been to 13 doctors without a solution. And in about 85% of those patients, they leave here within three to six months with their life back. So we're not perfect, but we really do well. And we offer people hope. And um, we really do help many, many, many people. So that's the, that's the idea. Wow. Wow. That's absolutely fascinating, David. I can't wait to dig into some of this. Um, I, I didn't think we would um, pivot straight into the the heavy metal stuff. But um, there's a link there because I do want to talk about vaccines. But let's 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 go naturally here. I, before we go any deeper, I want to understand your clinical and scientific observations as it relates to this COVID-19 issue we have, right, both in serious cases and deaths. I mean, I guess my first question is, are are you getting? Are you well read up in this? Are you? Have you seen COVID nineteen cases? Have you seen COVID nineteen deaths? Have you got anything to comment uh, at the at the kind of outset as to what you're seeing and what you think may be going on here for for people? Well, I mean, my specialty. I did you know infectious disease, and COVID nineteen is a coronavirus, and it's an infectious disease. It's a very common. It's been a common infectious disease. It's caused common cold for you know forever. So. Um, I am read up on it and I am uh, familiar with it. Our clinic, because we treat mostly people with chronic disease, made a decision early on that we weren't going to treat COVID patients. And if we have patients that come in or want to come in who have fever or coughs or problems that we we don't see them, we Mm -hmm. refer them elsewhere. Because I don't want my sick people, three quarters of the people that we see come from out of town to see us. And they come from all over the world. So I don't want to expose them or my staff to the potential of getting them, you know, coming here and infected. So we have to have a safe space. So we just made that as a decision. And so I have not seen one case of COVID and I don't know of any case of COVID where anyone died or even had to go in the hospital. So uh, I'm, I, I, so we tested all of our staff for COVID. And while a lot of people had thought that somewhere between December and April that they had had a cough, fever, ache that might have been COVID, out of 48 staff, uh, 47 had no antibody or no virus. And we had one new hire who was 23 years old she tested uh, a week after she got here, she tested positive for antibody. Um, and she'd had no clinical symptoms at all of anything. Hmm. So um, that's my that's my personal clinical experience. I have followed the literature and I've been watching this and uh, I do have some opinions on it, but that's where I, it, you know, in terms of personal experience, that's what I know. Got it. And then in terms of you following, yeah, following the epidemic, understanding, I, I guess, let, let's backtrack. I, I've been relatively obsessed uh, about understanding more about this, right? Um, from an immunology perspective, from a data science perspective, looking at global statistics, re- really trying to dig into this, understand uh, virology best as best I can as, as a layman. And um 
as you look, as you follow the data and as you dig into the data, dependent on your country, country, you get some overwhelming statistics, both in terms of age and comorbidity being, you know, key drivers or at least correlates. Um, I've spoken to a few people and they've drawn some conclusions as to who are the susceptible and is is this a killer virus or are we dealing with a thinning of the vulnerable? Um, and this just so happens to be a another attack vector. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What what? How would you want to characterize both the, the I guess the intensity of this virus and whether we're dealing with the virus being problematic or dealing with our people being unwell? Well, I think at the beginning it was really unclear. You know, was this a terrible worldwide plague kind of situation? When I was doing infectious disease practice, I had a few cases of actual plague, uh, one in an adult and one in a child. And the child had been playing on the outskirts of San Diego and had contacted plague probably from a flea from some kind of rodent that was infected. We knew that there was plague, uh, plague bacteria in the rodents outside of San Diego County and the more, you know, the, the mortality morbidity report, which is sort of an infectious disease newsletter that comes out every week uh, from the state of California, would sort of alert us in infectious disease of, hey, look for this. So, but it was very rare. And so I had a, I had a, he was probably two years old. His mother brought him into my pediatric office when she, when, when they brought, you know, when he came into the waiting room, the girls grabbed him and ran him back to the examining room. And I looked at the kid and he looked like he was in shock. He had a big swollen lymph node in his groin. He was in respiratory distress. Um, uh, we couldn't really get a blood pressure. I, I thought maybe this is plague. Um, I had the girls give him a penicillin shot and we threw him in the back of my car and we were just a couple blocks from the hospital called the hospital, took him in, in the emergency room. I ended up doing mouth to mouth on him in the car because he stopped breathing and he died in the emergency room within about 15 minutes. Now, you know, in the 1200s, I think 30 million people died from bubonic plague. It's a terrible infection. Um, and you know, if you can get them early enough, uh, antibiotics can work. Same with uh, flesh-eating strep. You know, there was an epidemic when I was uh, when I was in doing infectious disease in San Diego. What was called toxic shock syndrome. You know, you've uh, some in many cases it was related to a woman who left a tampon in, and she forgot about it. And there was a particular kind of staphylococcal bacteria which produced a biotoxin, which would then produce shock and you know, it would, these women would die before you even knew it. So uh, sometimes meningococcal meningitis, same thing. Meningococcus is a very bad bacteria. You get infected, it's lethal. So in those cases, you know, and we didn't know at the beginning of this COVID epidemic, was this one of those? Mm. Because it was so unclear and the data out of China was not reliable and, you know, nobody knew. And so I think that the measures that were taken uh, early on to protect everyone were probably reasonable. As you know, what's happened is with more data being uncovered, 
um, there it's a different story. There is a subset of people who are high risk. You know, 45% of the people in the United States who died of COVID were in nursing homes. Uh, they're older. Their nutrition is not good. Their vitamin D levels are low. They're on an average of 12 medications, some of which include a couple categories of blood pressure medication, which may put them at higher risk. Some of them are obese. So these are definitely risk factors for people. Um, most younger people have no risk and most other people don't have much risk either uh, unless they're immune compromised or they have chronic you know, pulmonary problems. Uh, but it's, you know, so I think that as it's become known that in a mortality sense, it's probably less than a bad year of influenza. Uh, it's unclear where this came from. You know, there's, there was some financing from, from the National Institutes of Health of coronavirus, and it's associated with Chinese researchers in the U.S. who were trying to go to China. It's not clear, was this bioengineered? Was this released on purpose? Was this an accident? So, but I think now the understanding of it is that it's a low morbidity virus that people who are high risk uh, or people who are sick should be quarantined. But as a general measure, most people are better having their exposure to it and getting over it and they'll be okay. I think some other people have tried to link this with 5G. Unclear to me, I don't think 5G is good, but maybe that's immune suppressing. It's also been linked to levels of glyphosate and, and, and arsenic and pollutants in the air because Wuhan has super high pollution levels. So does New York City, but so does Los Angeles and we didn't see it there. So, you know, I think that there's a, it's a mixed story, but at this point, my opinion is, and this is what, you know, at first our clinic was masked and gloved and gowns and the whole thing, but now we've relaxed it completely. And if people want to wear it, they can, but I don't think there's a high risk to your average person. And I think people should go back to work. Lovely. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate your, your perspective on that. Um, as, as I kind of look through this and I kind of pause through what seems to be at least highly correlated, it's these comorbidities and, and diabetes seems to be very, uh, or not very linked at 28% of all the UK, um, UK deaths have had diabetes and at least one other. So this idea of metabolic dysfunction, um, seems to be running through my head a lot. You know, there's some people that really specialize on discussing metabolic syndrome and, the, you know, the cluster of risk factors. Um, I've also heard the stat that in America, 88%, 88% of uh, the American population is metabolically unhealthy. And I can't help but to think, you know, when you have diabetes, high blood pressure, um, obesity, you know, these these aren't helping. These aren't helping your immune system. These aren't helping you function and be, be, be vibrant and have a strong response, robust response. Can you talk to me a little bit about whether I'm reading this right, that we have 
a sick population by default, and that's compromising our immunity, or if you see things differently, whether it be, as you've just said, environmental issues, such as uh, EMF or uh, metal toxicity, like, help me understand what you think are what's causing us to be vulnerable for what is it, as you say, a fairly benign coronavirus? Well, I think I think you're 100% right. You know, you may be familiar with this at the end of the 1800s, there was a very famous argument between the leading microbiologists at the time in Paris. Um, one was Pasteur and there was another guy named Besant. And mm-hmm. Pasteur was the head of professor of microbiology at the University of Paris. He was the guy with all the sort of the believed guy. And there was this other guy in the scene who was challenging Pasteur. And the argument was from Pasteur was the microbe is everything. And Bassant's argument was, no, it's the host is everything. You know, the host's health determines how sick the host gets with a given microbe. Now, that early examples I told of, of the, you know, a plague or flesh-eating strep or one of these things, sometimes microbes are really bad. And a lot of hosts, even if they're doing pretty good, will have trouble. Sometimes there's a lot of bad hosts and the microbe isn't so bad, but a lot of people get sick because of the reasons you said they're immune comp, you know, they're metabolically compromised. And I think in this virus, it's mostly the sick hosts and not the intensity of the virus. So, you know, blood sugar, uh, and um, and blood pressure issues. And really, this this goes back to, I think, polypharmacy, way too much medication. Um, and then poor nutrition and poor vitamin status, that those are the things in this particular thing mm. that make the biggest difference. And the other thing is is flu vaccine. The flu vaccine, the the United States Army did a study that showed that flu vaccine, increase the intensity of coronavirus infection by 36%. So I think at the beginning of the epidemic, when it was starting to look like what this was, if doctors would have said, hey, you're on um, lisinopril or one of these blood pressure uh, drugs, which um, increases the receptors through which in your lung where coronavirus docks, why don't we switch you to a different medicine? And oh, don't push the flu shot this year because it may increase your risk factors. Oh, and by the way, your vitamin D level is 20. Mm. And if it's 70, you have much higher resistance. Let's get a campaign going on just those three points. And I think the epidemic could have been cut way, way short on a global basis. But none of this was done or promoted. And I think in retrospect, that was a big mistake. And I agree with you totally. And I've heard so many uh, practitioners globally saying now's the time to elevate the message that has, for the most part, been falling on deaf ears other than a few kind of niche podcasts, you know, people listening keenly like myself. Like now's the time to spread the message on metabolic health and how quickly you can return your body 
to a place where you haven't got high blood sugar levels that you, know, you can start to engage with, you know, remove your visceral fat, that you can start to clear up some of these issues, increase your nutrient status. But it really hasn't, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen, other than the people that I'm already following, you know, amplifying their message, I've not seen it go mainstream. No one seems to be interested in improving the host's defense. It's instead one of hiding. <laughs> it's hide and seek versus, you know, nourish and improve the host. Why do you think that is? Is is that a kind of farmer play? Is that a money play? Or is it just, just a lack of interest from our government officials? I think it's it's two things. I think the money drives it in the direction it's going uh, because the profits, you know, the profits in in these things are pharmaceutical related. I think the second thing is, is that prevention doesn't sell. It just doesn't sell. If we in our clinic do promotion for prevention, so the two biggest killers in the United States on an annual basis are number one heart attacks, somewhere 650, 680,000 people a year die of heart attacks. And the second one is cancer, probably around 600,000 people a year die of cancer. If we run a promotion from the clinic in trying to attract patients of, hey, your chances of dying of a heart attack are pretty high. If your dad and your brother have had heart attacks, boy, it's really high. If you have high blood pressure and you have diabetes and you have peripheral vascular disease, your chances of a heart attack are really, really, really high, okay? Come in and we'll do an assessment and we can tune up your nutrition and we can, we can you know, if we find heavy metals in you, we can get them out. Um, you, you can't, you, you, nobody will go for that. Mm. They just don't go for that. It's much easier to just go to the doctor. You got high blood pressure? Okay, take this drug. You got high cholesterol? Take this drug. Change my diet? Not really. Not really. I'm not really wanting to do that. So I think it's those two factors. It's the money drives it one way. And then we've become a society where we sit around too much and, you know, we move too little and we want a solution that will be very quick and easy that someone else will pay for. And we consider that um, Garden of Eden uh, lifestyle. Mm. I, I agree. I agree. I, you know, whether, whether it's farmer money or it's food industry money, um, obviously from a GDP perspective, they both prop up uh, Western economies to some degrees, but definitely the U S and to a large part, the UK too. And um, well, it's not just the, it's, it's not the, see the, the ally of the epidemic is the media. So the fear that was created, you know, you can run the story two ways. You could run the story of this is a virus. It's common. Do these things. You'll be okay. You know, if you're old and sick, quarantine, but you're going to be okay. And then a little bit later, hey, it looks like these two antibiotics, man, they, they look pretty darn good and they're cheap. And they got a 40 year history of low toxicity. But, you know, with Plaquenil and ZPAC and or quercetin and zinc, you know, there, there are low level things 
that really look pretty darn effective. Not perfect, but pretty darn effective. But the story isn't played that way. The story is played by the media, mm -hmm. which has control of so much attention, especially when you get, you know, an epidemic type thing where people are watching and they're watching and they're watching. And about, you know, up to 70% of media buys, whether it's print or TV, are pharmaceutical related products. And they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. So if we can keep this stirred up and keep people relatively in the dark and afraid, it sells media buys and it sells drugs and it gives the hope of a vaccine that's going to save us all from this terrible epidemic. And that's where we've ended up. Yeah, I would say, David, it seems a little bit different in the UK. 100% the media has had an absolute field day, especially the BBC, which is really the mouthpiece of our government. Um, but I wouldn't say our, our government have been pretty, you know, blasé about it. They have, their message has been strong and uh, worrisome through, through, from the get-go. They have been, they've locked us down and continue to lock our country down. This is, uh, you know, June 16th and we still don't have most of our facilities around around the UK open. Um, we have an NHS though, so there isn't the, the the kind of profiteering that you would see in the US, not so much over here at least. Um, and we don't really run many medical ads, right? So there's a difference. However, I, I don't know, from my perspective, I see our, our, our country being governed by a diet format, which really is a low-fat diet format and a processed heavy diet format. And that contribute significantly to our GDP, you know, the food that we eat, the food that we import. And right. I, I think it's different over here. I mean, obviously, we spend a shit ton of money on medical supplies to, to fuel our NHS, but it's not profit-driven. It's not profit center, unlike the US. I do think the food industry, though, has a, has a part to play because it would be so easy, you'd think, given what you know, what I know, just to say, fix your diet, guys. Let's get a nutrient-dense diet into you. Let's pull back on the seed oils, the refined sugars, the added, um, sorry, the refined grains, the added sugar, and let's get you back to health with at least those three things. But we've not had that message once in the last three months. And I'm shocked by that, quite frankly, David. Well, I, I spent some time in Belfast about 20 years ago, and I was doing a, I was doing a volunteer humanitarian project. And I had, had some people come to me with like their health problems, and could I help them? And this may not, I don't know if this is true now, but I think it still is, is the availability of nutritional supplements and, and things like that was very, very limited. That, the, that the, the government had, like you couldn't get melatonin, you can't get certain amino acids, you couldn't get vitamin C higher than, you know, I don't remember, maybe it was 250 milligrams. Like there was really a, a very sort of harsh stance against people's freedom to pursue um, met, nutritional medicine, let's mm. say. Now, I don't know what the scene is now, but I know it's back then- It's definitely different. It, yeah, uh, we, we've definitely better. got closer to your, uh, to kind of the US's stance on pro-supplementation. Uh, Amazon, for example, really makes that easy. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we're just as uh, advanced as you guys in some of the, you know, the well-regarded- highly certified, high dose stuff that you guys can get your hands on. The other, the other one is I just had some people here from Sweden and I don't know 
what's in the UK. I think that you can do it in the UK, but like ozone, like ozone is a tremendous treatment for infection. And like in Sweden, the doctor who was doing it just got, he got closed down. So, um, you know, again, I'm not totally familiar with it, but I think that the, the, maybe it's media bias or maybe it's medical boards or, or, you know, national health services, they have a way that they want to do it. And it's pretty much going to be done their, their way, depending on where you live. Let's talk about vaccines a little bit. So you've mentioned vaccines a couple of times. I kind of um, keyed us off saying I'd like to talk about that. Look, I want I want to be upfront. I I'm not an anti-vaxxer, albeit I have heard several um, vaccination type discussions on some kind of freedom platforms over the last few months. And if if I'm being completely honest, I'm not buoyed with a lot of confidence in that industry especially given uh, the pace in which we're promising the world we're going to have something never done before available to us to inject into 7 billion people. For me, that doesn't sit well. But I wanted to get your perspective because you mentioned the flu vaccine and how that could actually increase your risk of um, uh, infection or serious infection of COVID. What's your personal opinion on vaccine efficacy? And I'm guessing there are different different vaccines that you feel more favourable than others. But what's your position on that? And do you think we should be holding out for that silver bullet in the year or so's time? Well, I, I don't think we should be holding on to the silver bullet because here, here's the problem. My, my approach to medicine is the, it's the greatest solution for the greatest number of people with the, with the Hippocratic uh, sort of oath in mind, like, do, first of all, do no harm. Mm-hmm. Now, is everything that you give people going to guarantee no harm to everyone? No, but the good practices help a lot and don't harm very many. The problem with coronavirus vaccines is they've been worked on since at least 2003, the SARS epidemic in 2003. There has been a concerted effort to bruise the vaccine, and there hasn't, they have not been able to do it. And the vaccines that they've been able to do give this problem where if you are vaccinated against the bug, and you then get exposed to the bug, that you will get really sick. That it it you makes get you kind of storm, right? Yeah, and this is this is also what they found with the. I, I just read this from the Royal Society of Medicine that happened with the uh, human papillomavirus vaccine. That the girls, it was supposed to be a preventive for um, cervical cancer, so they were vaccinating girls at 12 and 13 years old with the hope that they would prevent them from getting cervical cancer. The average age of cervical cancer is uh, mid fifties. So you're giving someone something at 12 where by the, in the hopes that you will prevent a disease, uh, you know, when they're 55 years old. And, and what they found is that when they gave the girls the vaccine, and then now they just, the Royal Society of Medicine just looked at their data on it and they found that the girls who got the vaccine, who then were exposed to HPV, so it's a sexually transmitted disease, that their incidence of cervical cancer was increased by 46% over those that didn't get vaccine. Now that's a disaster. So 
I want vaccines, but I want them well tested and well and known that they are effective and safe. So far with Corona in 17 years, nobody's been able to do it. Now, maybe there's so much effort towards it that someone will figure it out. Mm. But the usual, the usual vaccine takes many, many years, 10, 15 years in development to make sure it's safe and that it's effective. And there's usually, there's animal studies and it's proven okay. And they're skipping those in, in some of the vaccines that have been tried. They're going right to human studies. Uh, one of them that came out, the 20% of the people who got the vaccine, now these are healthy people. These aren't older people, medicated people, you know, obese people. These were healthy people and 20% of them got really sick like seriously ill, go to the hospital. So my hesitation on it is with the ability to control lifestyle, nutrition, um, maybe antibiotics if someone's sick as a, as a solution. And if a vaccine is developed with enough time and enough proof that it really is going to be good, bring it on. But I don't see that at this point. So I'm suspect like you and I'm, I'm leery about it. I guess to, to layer that on, and, and please correct me if I'm, I'm uh, looking at this the wrong way, but I understand there was, a, there was an act that passed in 1986 that effectively does away with the, you know, the blinded um, clinical trials for safety testing, or at least rigorous safety testing on humans, um, blinded, that is, um, for these vaccines. And in, in addition to that, there are some, I guess, avoidance of liabilities. They can't be held liable if there's there's unknown injuries that occur as a result of the vaccine. So um, I don't know if I've fully stated that right. I don't know if you understand it better, this this act. But if, I, if that is correct, and both testing can be navigated around, in, in a spirit of getting things out quickly. And in order to get things out quickly, these uh, vaccine manufacturers are basically uh, not liable should things go wrong. I don't, I don't like that combined with what you said, that the coronavirus has yet, or there hasn't been a vaccine that has been successful against a coronavirus in 17 years. That doesn't feel like that's the thing we're going to resolve in the next year. Right. See, what happened was, is that the the lawsuits against vaccine companies were getting to be, were getting to the point where it didn't, you couldn't make money manufacturing and selling vaccines because the liabilities were so high and the paybacks were so high that the vaccine companies basically went to the US government and they said, we need some cover for this, or we're gonna stop making vaccines because it just isn't monetarily viable, mm. which as a business decision, every business owner might make, okay? I don't fault them for that. What the US government did is a law was passed um, that said that you they didn't have liability for problems with their vaccines as long as in the vaccine information, they put down everything they knew that could happen if you took the vaccine. So basically they said, Here's all the things that could happen. 
and they put down all the reactions that they possibly could think of and could find, which is really an admittance that these things cause problems and we know it and we're telling you up front. Because if it's not mentioned in there, they could be sued. So the, the, the disclosures are very, very broad. About $5 billion, a little less, 4.6, something like that, have been paid out by a U.S. government fund of people who got vaccine injury uh, that they covered that the vaccine manufacturers didn't have to cover. And honestly, the process of going through that is very difficult. And um, you are not allowed, if you bring a suit, your child is damaged or you are damaged by a vaccine, you are not allowed to, uh, to get the information, the inside information on the vaccine, its side effects, its problems from the vaccine manufacturer. You, you are not allowed to look at that information. So even with that, about almost $5 billion has been paid out by the U.S. government. The incentive that occurred then is that vaccine companies then didn't have a very high bar to do enough experimentation so that they knew that it really worked or that it wasn't gonna cause big problems because their liability levels were low as long as they disclosed what was in them. And that has been a problem. So that they're not, they're not motivated to do uh, rigorous blinding. I know blinded can, be, uh, can have efficacy issues or moral issues in its own right, but they're not motivated to spend inordinate amount of money and time and find the right patients and and kind of you know do outcome based reporting over years on them because one it takes too long two it's loads of money and three if they just have a, a general long list of potential ailments that could occur they're kind of covered anyway yeah and here's the other problem is if you look at the 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 where the profits are in the pharmaceutical industry there is still, there's a long runway. I mean, I think the average drug is 10 or 12 years yeah. to get through all the rigors of the FDA. It's, it's a billion dollars and the liability is there. So they have to build in with, with their profits. I don't deny them profits either. I mean, uh, some of these medications, you know, we really need them, but, um, but with vaccines, it's a different ball game. If the liability is taken out of it, that makes it very attractive. So I was, I used to be a pediatrician and we gave, you know, six or eight vaccines in the first year, nothing before two months. And we had problems with it sometimes, but most kids got through and now they get 26 vaccines starting on day zero of life. And, you know, now we, we, I'm not saying it's a cause effect relationship, but now we have epidemic of childhood autism and cancer and ADD and allergies and asthma and autoimmune disease. And it's, I think that combined with the environmental toxicity issue and the bad food, that these contribute to this and the relative liability is low. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, we're going to get, we're going to talk about heavy metals, but I think as a segue, David, maybe we could talk about heavy metals in vaccines. Are you aware, are you aware of, uh, you know, whether there was 
um, you know, mercury in prior vaccinations, because I've heard that that's uh, a bit of an issue, and whether the likes of aluminium or other forms of metal are still present in vaccines today. Do you, do you know much about that? Well, most of the childhood vaccines, the, the mercury has been taken out of it. Um, I think the current flu vaccine still has mercury, but I'd have to check that. Aluminum is a common component, and there have been studies on, you know, the amounts of aluminum that are being injected into a, you know, eight or 10 pound kid uh, is a lot compared to what the environmental exposure would be and that aluminum can cause uh, brain inflammation. So uh, it's just one of the things, polysorbate 80 and formaldehyde. And this new COVID vaccine has aborted baby parts in it. And, you know, people have different, you know, there's a toxicity issue. There's a, there's sort of a moral issue. So, the vaccines just don't work unless you put these things in. If you just put a, you know, sort of modified COVID virus parts in, you don't get an immune response. So these so-called adjuvants, they're additives. You gotta put them in there or you don't get an immune response. Why, because they're, so, they're antagonizing fervor? Is that, is that what they're doing there? They're antagonizing immune system? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. Okay, so you, not only you're given a kind of mild or slightly weakened version of, of a virus with a view to create some kind of memory, immune immune memory, but for really yeah. for that that process to start, uh, for it to cascade, you need something to agitate, and it's these these components that kind of support the agitation of your immune system to get them kickstarted. Right. I mean, I don't think the guys that are working with these or that are designing these are sitting around thinking, boy, what poison can we put in there to not. just kill everybody? It's what can we put in there so that we can measure an immune response in two months, in two years, hopefully in 20 years that will be lasting so that if the person does get exposed, they'll be protected like what would occur if you got the natural disease. And that is a very tall hill to climb. And, and, and I don't know of any vaccines that don't have the adjuvants that are effective. So they have all are loaded up. Look at the list of stuff that's on there. Much of it is to try to create an immune response so that, and hopefully it will carry over so that the thing that you're trying to get them immunity to will also be part of the re you know, of the immune reaction. Got it. And that will last a long time. And and the problem is they don't last a long time, even with that mm. in many of the vaccines. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that as well. <laughs> okay. Um, there was one other question um, on the vaccines. Oh, right. G given your understanding, you know, and, and you've, you've rightly said this up front, we know more now than we did in February as it relates to COVID-19. We know about its um, morbidity. We understand it doesn't really affect immune, immune healthy people. Uh, it's more the susceptible and immune compromise that can come unstuck. With that being said, and whether we get something that hits the market, a vaccine in the next year or so, and I think that is wishful thinking, but if we were to get it, do you think we need to vaccinate our people? Here's the other thing that people don't actually understand. We, our exposure on a daily basis 
is to millions or billions or trillions of microorganisms. And our immune system is programmed, <coughs> excuse me, our immune system is programmed to get the information from these microbiology particles. And if they're a threat, produce an, an immune reaction. And if they're no threat, let them alone. And it's been a system that's worked for, I don't know, a couple million years at least that humans have been on the planet. Uh, and so I think that vaccines as an answer to modern life is the wrong way to go. The right way to go is what you mentioned. It's lifestyle. It's good food. It's good fellowship. It's good media, you know, it's good supplementation. Uh, and that is what health is about. And I think if the campaigns were to educate in that direction, you could have a lot of people that had good immune systems. There would be good herd immunity. The weak ones or the ones that take too many drugs or drink too much or eat too much sugar would have a lower level of exposure because everybody else is kind of immune and they don't pass it around so much. And you'd have a healthier, happier society. But we're going fast in the other direction. And that's without, the without the need of vaccine. So in this alternate world <laughs> where everyone got the message, everyone took the simple steps to recover their, their health over a course of weeks and months. If we had done that, if we do that holistically across our countries, um, and I know that's a tall order. Um, instant gratification drives a lot of our behavior and, you know, uh, marketing dollars drive our behavior, right? So I get that. But if we were able to reach this utopia, would there be a place for vaccines today? Well, I, I, here's something that's, that if you're walking through a field where there is horse manure and you're barefoot and you step on a, on a horse pile of manure and there happens to be a rusty nail at the bottom of it and you get a puncture wound mm. in your foot, go to the emergency room and get a tetanus shot. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's not that there isn't any reason for anything, but most of the things that are now vaccinated for the risk reward you have to really look at. In that case, to me, the risk reward is get the freaking tetanus shot. You know, your likelihood of really getting sick from it is low. The likelihood that the shot will protect you in the unlikely, you know, that you got tetanus and go for it. When I do that wager with a flu vaccine, I say, I'm not going to take the flu vaccine because it, the statistics on it are doesn't really work with COVID. It makes you at higher risk. You know, so I, I think that as a public health policy, that's the equation that has to be looked at. Like, are we really doing things that are going to be for the good of most, or is it driven by some other agenda? Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there are some um, well-tested vaccines that, you know, we've grown up with. 
that, you know, whether it be smallpox or TB, for example, that you, you probably say, you know, we d- we done the right thing with the use of vaccines in eliminating those viruses. Uh, I don't know if that's what you agree with or not. Um, and maybe, you know, the measles stuff, is, it makes sense. I don't know. But I guess what doesn't make sense to me, and it's be- increasingly not making sense to me, is to vaccinate our children with this kind of insurance policy against getting something that is got such low prevalence in the world. Like, that doesn't make sense. And then what's second? Yeah, low prevalence or low morbidity? Like, well, low morbidity you know. and low prevalence, right? So there's certain yeah. vaccinations we have today, and it's like, well, where's the prevalence of that? Why does it still make sense to load our child, uh, our kids up with these vac- vaccines? And then conversely, with these kind of new emerging vaccines, and I know there are many on the roster of potentially getting into our schedule, um, these are, it just, it, it just doesn't feel like a good equation for me. I'd rather promote good health to my kids and uh, let them decide if they want to when they're older. I don't know if that's um, naive of me or not. Right. I think so too. And it, it's uh, unfortunately now they're being enforced. You know, governments are taking action which say you must or you can't participate in school or society. Uh, and that's, that, that's, that, that's creating a problem too for people who, who see it a different way. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Um, let's, let's kind of get, get into this, this, uh, interesting space of heavy metal. So you spoke about your wife's story. Um, and as you would think, as you were saying that, that did trigger a thought. I did have some metal filings, um, many years ago, metal fillings, sorry. And I did have those removed. Now, I didn't react in the way that your your wife reacted. I was, I was a hell of a lot younger as well, though. Um, that being said, I'm not a picture of health. I pride myself on being quite healthy, but I've got a few little issues, including a bit of vitiligo. And I've never really ever thought that my uh, fillings could have perhaps caused or contributed to some immune issues or some inflammation or some toxicity. So you got me thinking whether I need to explore that. But let's use that as the kind of jumping off point. If someone's hearing this conversation, heard your wife's um, kind of story, gone, oh, I don't know, have, have I got heavy metals in me? I had metal fillings or is there heavy metals in the foods I'm eating and the environment I'm engaging with? How do I work this out? What, how do I know? Well, you actually have to go to, to a practitioner who can test you out and see uh, if you're full of this stuff or not. I mean, the, the sort of average GP or, or OBGYN is, is not thinking of this or looking at it and just doesn't have an education on it. So you'd have to see someone who's either nutritionally oriented or osteopath or, you know, you know, somebody who's in a, who's looking at, at, at toxicology as part of the problem for someone's ill health. And then as soon as you start looking, you'll find lots of stuff. And how do you, how do you, how do you look clinically? What, what's the process of identifying heavy metals in, in somebody? Uh, we look for blood levels of, uh, heavy metals. We look for, Normally, the um, the heavy metals when they enter your body, whether it's from food or air or injected, 
stay in your bloodstream only 30 to 60 days, then they're put into the tissue somewhere. They're stored in the tissue. Mm. So if you do a random test of blood and there's no exposure, the levels will be low. Uh, the average person in the United States that I'm testing, almost everybody has uh, blood lead level, blood levels of lead that are elevated and blood lead, uh, blood levels of arsenic that are elevated. Some also have aluminum. If they eat a lot of big fish, they have mercury. So that's one way to look at it. Another way is that you can check urine for mercury, but you have to give a challenge substance. You have to give a what's called a chelator. It's something that you take either IV or orally, which will bind heavy metals. The body will then put them into the urine and you can measure levels of the heavy metals in the urine. And there are standards for what's acceptable and what's not. And that's another way to tell. There's a third way, which is sometimes done, where you can look at hair levels of heavy metals. And sometimes that's helpful if there's very high levels. Um, there was a big study done on people who had heart disease and they did cardiac biopsies and they found in a whole group of people whose heart disease was not due to blocked arteries, you know, like the arteries were good in their heart, but they had levels thousands of times elevated of mercury, arsenic, cadmium in their heart tissue, which was causing the muscle to malfunction. And so they couldn't walk around because their heart just wouldn't pump right. So those are the common ways that are sort of objectively available to see what's what. I just think that um, if people are going to their doctors and they have chronic problems, whether it's their skin or their energy or their sleep or even their mood, excess anxiety or depression, uh, or they have cancer, or they have rheumatoid arthritis or chronic high blood pressure, that the tools that the average doctor has are insufficient to really help you debug what you got. And you have to go somewhere to a healthcare practitioner whose education is such that they would know about these things and they could help you to find out what is going on and then help you get better. <clears throat> okay. And if if people haven't reached the conclusion that heavy metals may be a problem and they're going on, on a kind of nutritional path, nutritional journey of clearing, cleaning up their diet and sorting out their lifestyle, etc. Um, would you recommend that that be the the first few steps people take is resolve the lifestyle stuff. And now if you're still struggling with whether it be autoimmune diseases or um, some kind of chronic disease of sorts, then maybe look at the heavy metals or would you, would you do it in reverse? Oh no, because the first thing I do is I clean up their nutrition. I mean the, 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 you, you will never have health if you have bad nutrition. So I generally start people on a, on a low carb, organic, paleo type approach diet. So meat, fish, eggs, fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, no grains, no legumes, no nightshades, organic, no processed foods. If it comes in a box, don't eat it. A huge percentage of people, if they will do that for six to eight weeks, will resolve their energy and their gut 
and their and a lot of their chronic issues. Uh, there's just no shortcut to to eating properly if you want to feel good. So take care of take care of the nutritional and lifestyle aspects first, and then yeah. if you're I mean, still it, plagued with issue, then maybe yeah. start I mean, to go down the heavy metal take route. Take a vitamin C and a fish oil supplement at minimum, and make sure that you have a bowel movement every day. If you have to take extra magnesium or extra fiber, that you go every day, no matter what, at least once. That you get in the UK, I don't know about sunshine, so take a vitamin D supplement. <laughs> Get outside and walk or exercise for at least 30 minutes every day of something you enjoy. Walk the dog, play tennis, get your body active. You know, I think if you do, and, and then make sure that you get enough sleep. Seven, eight, nine hours, what your body requires. Set a bedtime, get in bed, figure out what you need in your room. Turn off the Wi-Fi, make sure it's dark. Don't look at your media an hour before. Have a have a uh, a agreement with your spouse that no inflammatory subjects two hours before bedtime. <laughs> We're not going to argue about the bills before bedtime for two hours or whatever it is. And then figure out what's soothing to you. Is it a hot bath? Is it some nice music? Is it some uh, some you know, some light reading, is it a crossword puzzle? You know, how can you calm your body down from a busy day to a state where it's now relaxed and you could have good sleep? And I think if you do those simple things, it would solve many things for many people. Fantastic. Listen, I know you have to go. This was Riverton. We didn't touch on one last piece, but perhaps I'll get you in for a part two. Help uh, the audience know where to find you, uh, resources, and maybe quickly plug your book before your next patient. Okay, so uh, two websites, actually three websites. My clinic is LifeWorks Wellness Center, L-I-F-E-W-O-R-K-S, center.com. It's our clinic. There's uh, thousands of pages on there of information. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can call and talk to one of our uh, new patient screeners, see if we're the right fit for you. Um, I have a company that produces uh, nutritional products. It's called Body Health. So the website is bodyhealth.com. We have great organic, fantastic supplements that uh, really help people. And then um, Dr. Minkoff, D-R-M-I-N-K-O-F-F.com uh, is the third website, which is more about me and what I'm what I'm interested in. And you're, uh, are, you, are you involved in social? Social media? Uh, yeah, and uh, you can go on the websites. You can get all those, the social media contacts. So we have all that stuff going. And then the book is called The Search for the Perfect Protein. Um, it uh, was a bestseller on Amazon. It's available. Um, you can actually download it from the web, from the Body Health website. Um, I think it's written for lay people, but I think it will give you a better understanding of health, gut health, nutrition, uh, than you have now. And that will really, um, if you're, if you're trying to get better, I think it'll give you a lot of good ideas that you can pursue. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for chewing a fat with me and exploring some, uh, interesting fringe angles. Uh, you, you are fantastic. I wish you all the best for the year. 
hopefully uh, we return to our civil liberties ASAP and um, I look forward to perhaps getting you on for a part two. Okay, thank, uh, Steve. Thanks so much. So Enjoy yeah, it. Bye-bye. All right. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, That's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.